My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagrads, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? I mean, why are we speaking about the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the second year, uh, well, on the two-year anniversary? Hi, Dario. Well, um, these past two years um, have seen quite a lot of changes in the Western bubble perspective, and not so much on the front. The front has remained relatively static, uh, with relatively minor changes, despite an awful lot of destruction. However, the Western bubble has uh, has seen significant um, shifts up and down in terms of hype, in terms of um, public interest, and it is worth analyzing that. And what are the facts? On the 24th of February 2022, two years ago, Russia invaded Ukraine in an escalation of the Russia-Ukrainian war that started in 2014. Since the war's outbreak, it is estimated that over 500,000 casualties have been taken in total. Specifically, there have been around 315,000 Russian casualties, 200,000 Ukrainian casualties, including over 10,000 civilians who have died. By June 2022, Russian troops occupied about 20% of Ukrainian territory. From the 41 million population in, in January 2022, about 8 million Ukrainians have been internally displaced and more than 8.2 million have fled the country by April 2023. The year 2023 saw a mostly static front with a large Ukrainian offensive failing in the summer and Russia recently regaining the upper hand. In 2024, Western support is drying up, similarly to Western interest in the war overall. What is the bubble? So before we kind of start the conversation on the whole bubble, I think it's important to once again highlight um, our position from all the other episodes, right, is that Russia started this war, right? It is Putin who is to blame. Um, for for the suffering, um, it's not like at gunpoint he was forced by Joe Biden or someone else uh, to 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 give the orders. No, this is very much still the fault of Russia, right? And when we talk about Russia, we talk specifically talking about Putin. And this is particularly important given the way that social media, the internet works, and some listeners in the past certainly have heard us speak critically of western attitudes towards the war and the moment that you criticize nato or the moment even that you criticize let's say zelensky then that from their sort of binary mindset automatically means that then you must be on the side of the russians and of course we are very much not it was um from an ir perspective criminal that putin and the kremlin decided to invade ukraine um it they are always the primary people to blame and we will never in any way take away from that. But our interest is critically analyzing the West, because that's the whole point of this podcast. And on this two-year anniversary, there's two main aspects of the Western bubble that are worth uh, analyzing. So first, the hype is gone. And then the second one 
If negotiations had taken place one and a half years ago, we could have saved ourselves and most importantly the Ukrainians and the Russians a lot of destruction and suffering. Um, so starting with the hype is gone. Um, there's two reasons for this, right? Uh, on the one hand, and we've discussed this multiple times in past episodes, the West really likes winners. Well, everyone really likes winners, but it's a big part of the Western bubble that, you know, the West has won a lot of things over the last 400 years, uh, particularly uh, right in the, in the 20th century. And so we like winners. And we liked Ukraine very much for this because of their brave resistance to this invasion, right? It, it's, it's kind of like this underdog story that was being told um, very successfully for, I would say, about a year. And that is something that has stopped. I mean, that has shifted very much because Ukraine is now more on the defense than on the offense. All of this within the context of um, already the West having a long-term chip on the shoulder with respect to Russia, of course. Russia always having been seen as kind of the bad guys, the, the threat, rightfully or wrongfully, but, but it's been there. Um, Ukraine being seen as Western in nature, democracy, liberal, etc., etc., And then the moment that Russia invades and it turns out that Russia completely underestimates Ukrainian resistance and completely overestimates its own military power and its own popularity within Ukraine, then that creates this perfect storm for Western media, right? Good guy versus bad guy. Good guy actually is showing the bad guy um, how to fight a war because the bad guy really didn't know how to plan and uh, how to strategize. And so initially you see this enormous success hype of we all stand behind Ukraine and Ukraine can defeat Russia and if Ukraine can defeat Putin. And as a result, um, the general public in Western countries gets hyped up, gets excited, starts uh, reading the news, starts commenting on social media about that. That is a very human reaction to this kind of situation, but it had nothing to do with the well-being of Ukraine, everything to do with the well-being of Western psychology, essentially. Mm. And this is something that we uh, very much saw just uh, two weeks ago at the Munich Security Conference, right? This big privately organized uh, format where global leaders, mostly Western leaders, are invited uh, to discuss security matters. And everything that came out of the conference was a lot of pessimism about the world as a whole. Right? Because you have the Ukraine war still happening, you have the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. But particularly with Ukraine, you could clearly tell that Russia gaining the upper hand and more and more reports coming out about this, it, there was this big cloud above Western policymakers that are still very much trying to keep support for Ukraine high. Because when we look at the population, that's a completely different image, right? So apart from the fact that Ukraine is no longer winning, two years after the war, we also see a lot of other problems um, that populations have, have started to focus on, right? I mean, yes, there was a lot of hype and a lot of focus on the war in the first six months. But since then, right, cost of living crisis in countries, inflation has been up, uh, the climate is still around, um, like domestic political issues... Ukraine is simply no longer the first priority um, for a lot of average Western bubble people. Yeah, so international relations has this unsavory aspect of basically 
let's get the popcorn out, right? When something happens at the show in the short term, people are entertained by it and they wouldn't call it entertainment. But that's essentially what it was for people in Western Europe, not for people in Ukraine, of course, because the Ukrainians actually felt the consequences, saw the war with their own eyes, lost their loved ones, saw destruction of their towns and cities. But in Western Europe and in North America, it was essentially, oh, this is fun. We see Russia basically making a fool of itself and the Ukrainians are showing them off. Now, um, that's, that entertainment factor is completely gone. And policymakers who were riding that public wave are now in trouble for two reasons. First of all, they now have to actually go back to their actions over the past two years and scratch their head and think, okay, how did we actually contribute to a situation that led to a pretty bleak scenario in February, March of 2024? How, what were, how did we actually mess this up? But also a genuine concern about, hey, now the public is no longer with us. The public doesn't prioritize this politically. And we still believe that we need to support Kiev. We still need to fight this war against Russia. And that creates a real headache for policymakers and politicians. And the public is... I mean, in the United States, we see this very specifically with the uh, elections, right, with the primaries uh, leading up to the presidential elections, where a lot of questions are being asked, um, why are we sending billions of US dollars uh, to Ukraine in support of, of their efforts against Russia, while there's so much at home that's lacking, right? I mean, so many investments that are to be done in Europe slowly, but surely that feeling is coming up as well. I mean, again, here. Because I'm German, I, I very much have the German perspective where the German economy has been stagnating for, for a few uh, quarters now. Um, and one of the big reasons is obviously the fact that there's no longer cheap access to energy. Um, right? So a lot of people are starting to look into that direction because two years ago, carrying these sanctions as a pretty robust economy was a different thing than doing that two years later. And if you can start to feel that in your own pocket with inflation, with cost of living crisis, then you kind of start to look into the direction of the policymakers and be like, okay, how much of this is because of our own behaviors, because of our own actions? Yes, and if the, the it shows the flimsy nature of public support for foreign policy in general. In the short term, you can make a case, oh, this is uh, protecting the free, uh, brave Ukrainians from being overrun by a dictator. In the long run, that no longer holds any water for the, the general public. It, it no longer um, allows them to get excited or motivated about the issue. It becomes too abstract. The same with, you can get rid of Saddam Hussein, we need to invade Iraq because we want to get rid of Saddam Hussein, but once Saddam Hussein is gone, you can't explain to the general public why the United States and NATO allies are still there in Iraq. The same with Afghanistan. We need to catch Osama bin Laden. Okay, that's a clear thing that people can get behind for a few months. But five years down the line, they don't understand why their soldiers are dying in a civil war in Afghanistan. This is a very common pattern in international relations. And that bubble has been particularly um, visible when it came to Ukraine because of the incredible hype that existed a year and a half ago. And the complete lack of interest that exists nowadays. Hmm. And to to take this into the overall Western bubble um, analysis that we have done throughout all the last one and a half years, 
it's it also right so the russian ukrainian war also allows western policymakers to focus very much on external problems something very easy to focus on right that the public will as you said initially get behind but it leaves too much room to neglect the problems at home right the problems that need fixing that you can't just manage away while you're being a big great foreign policymaker and and this is one of the things that is very difficult about foreign policy, right? Um, the same could be, what you're saying now is a similar argument that could be made when it comes to international cooperation, for example, foreign aid and things like that. Um, the United States every year spends about 35 billion on foreign aid to developing countries. That is complex, that is tricky, that is not always going to the right uh, causes. And people hear about that and they say, why are we sending 35 billion uh, abroad when we have poverty and infrastructural problems at home. Foreign policy is really difficult to explain in general to the, um, to the general public because there is just an awful lot of variables at play. Now, that doesn't mean that complex foreign policy is always wrong. And that sometimes it is actually in the interest of the United States to be actively engaged with the rest of the world and to actually spend money on the rest of the world, even if they find it difficult to explain it to their electorates, to the general public. But you still need to, at the very minimum, be able to paint a success scenario. You need to tell the people, this is why we're doing that. We are spending 10 billion on this specific case because that will be good for the world or that will be good for the United States in the long run or that will be good for the Ukrainian somehow. And that success scenario is no longer there. People cannot explain why we are spending money and um, weapons on Ukraine. And the result is that the general public is becoming very skeptical and it goes down that path that you're describing. Hey, if they can't explain to me why we're spending billions on Ukraine, then I'd rather have them spend those billions on um, improving my own country at home. So a question based on this that could come up, um, and this is the second part of the Western bubble that we're analyzing today is, so then why didn't we put an end to this earlier? Right. Um, not militarily. Please, please don't have those uh, funky ideas that the West should intervene militarily in Ukraine, but in the form of negotiations. Right. So why weren't there intensive diplomatic efforts by the West to say, OK, Russia, Ukraine, let's get to the negotiation table. Let's put an end to this because, again, still speaking from the popular uh, what the, from the population perspective within the West, because that way, now, today, we, won't, we, we wouldn't be facing the same problems as we are, right? Um, obviously, extending this to the situation on the ground, maybe a few hundred thousand lives would, would have been saved in this. So the question here, very specifically for the podcast, is then why did the West not engage in negotiations one and a half years ago? That, that's, that's the big question, right? That is, that is exactly the most shameful aspect of all of this. Uh, one of the reasons why... Western foreign policymakers right now are struggling so much because if you go back to the summer of 2022, the moment that it that that Ukraine was seemingly winning the war, and with winning the war, we're not talking about defeating the Russian forces completely, but they had halted the Russian offensive quite effectively. The Russians were scrambling, they were in chaos. Their planning had been disastrous. Ukraine was very motivated, felt the support from the rest of the world. Somewhere in the summer of 2022, there was a moment that Ukraine was at its strongest. 
And at that moment, there was actually a serious space available, both at least vaguely supported by Kiev and by Moscow, to get negotiating, to go and talk at least about a ceasefire, if not maybe a peace treaty, but at least a ceasefire. Why? Because both the Russians and Ukrainians saw their people dying. They saw the, the money it was costing. They saw the destruction that was taking place. And who was the main reason for that cease, those ceasefire negotiations not to take place? The West. The West saw an opportunity. They didn't face the actual violence in their own backyard. It was the Ukrainians who were suffering, not the Americans and not the West Europeans. And they saw an opportunity to essentially weaken and maybe even overthrow Vladimir Putin, their big rival. And they wanted Ukrainians to continue this proxy war for them in order to uh, keep at the very minimum pressure on Russia uh, alive. And therefore the discourse in the West was, no, 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 we can't negotiate with Putin. The only, the only possibility would be for Ukraine to take back all of its territory. And un until that happens, there is no room for a ceasefire. And so that means that now the West is essentially responsible for these hundreds of thousands of casualties you mentioned in the fact sheet. The West is responsible for the enormous destruction. And they will have to acknowledge that if today any ceasefire negotiations were to take place, the conditions for Ukraine would be either the same or worse than they could have been a year and a half ago. It's interesting and a bit shocking to me um, that I think this is the first time in two years that we have called this a proxy war, which it has been uh, effectively for one and a half years. And maybe the listeners can correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe we have called it a proxy war before, but uh, at least to me, it feels like this is the first time. And exactly as you said, right, one and a half years ago in the summer of 2022, Ukraine would have had very favorable conditions because right, it was winning. Putin could have kept face in a, in sorts, right? Because he freed the regions that were very important to him in, in Eastern Ukraine. Um, you also had a precedent, right? A successful precedent for this because you had just finished the negotiations for the Black Sea Grain Initiative. Remember, uh, right, there's a quick reminder for everyone that this was the negotiations uh, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, supervised and led by Turkey and the United Nations to allow um, Ukrainian grain exports through the Russia-controlled Black Sea, um, basically to the world, to I mean, also solve a, a global food crisis uh, in that sense. So you had all of that momentum. And as you then said, well, the West blocked this. Uh, how do we know that? Uh, is, is that? Is that Because I haven't read about, right? I mean, I, I know about this, but I haven't read about this in that sense. That's... There, there are two, two ways that we know this. First, we know that because of statements by Western leaders about um, supporting Ukraine till the end and um, being skeptical about negotiations with ceasefire, even on the day that Zelensky basically, I think it was Zelensky's office actually, but put out a statement saying, hey, uh, we might be willing to negotiate. Straight away, Western leaders said, oh, uh, we don't think that's a good idea. Um, and there have been an awful lot of little bits of information coming out um, from Paris, from, from um, uh, London, from Washington about this, right? About the idea that it's really not acceptable for um, the West to give Putin any sense of victory. And how this then worked is not obviously in the end they would have had to respect Zelensky's wishes, but what they did to, with Zelensky is they said, 
we please don't give in to Putin. We will support you. We have your back. We're already um, generating an awful lot of extra production of ammunition and all those kinds of things. Uh, look at how successful you've been in these past couple of months. Um, if, if things go continue as planned, then soon you will be driving into the into Crimea. And that was basically the narrative that, that Zelensky heard from them. Um, and, and this was backed up by Western media, right? That basically couldn't cope with the idea of giving Putin, Putin anything successful out of this invasion. The, the moment that you describe Putin as just an evil dictator bent on destruction and conquest and nothing else, then it becomes almost impossible to accept anything less than total victory, even if total victory is not in the realm of possibilities. Total victory was never there. It was never even explained what that would mean, but there was never a, a, a scenario in which Ukraine would just completely overwhelm Russian forces. That just wasn't going to happen. And people kind of knew it, but they didn't want to admit it. And still nowadays you feel a lot of resentment and resistance against anyone arguing for some kind of negotiation. Let me get back to something you said um, right before this, um, right? Because the, the West very much promised Zelensky, hey, we will support you until the end. We will assure that there will be a Ukrainian victory. And not only Zelensky believed this, but also the population of Ukraine. And now, two years later, you see articles coming out um, basically saying the West has betrayed us. Because obviously now, um, right, there's still the Ukrainian soldiers on the front lines, um, but they do not have everything they need, right? So the West in that sense has not um, stacked up on ammunition. Um, there, the uh, well, appropriate weapons aren't being delivered. Funds are drying up. So all now you have a feeling of betrayal within Ukraine, uh, kind of saying that, oh, hello, what, what, what about that promise? Plus the fact that you have a few hundred thousand uh, people uh, additionally dead or uh, wounded or destruction caused to buildings, um, increased poverty and so on and so forth, all the negative outcomes of war. Um, that, that that seemed like a really bad strategic move by the West, which kind of goes into what you just finished your statement with, that it doesn't seem like there was a real perspective by the West to what could be the outcome here, right? The, the only perspective that I see and interpret from two years ago was the only acceptable outcome is a total Ukrainian victory. But I'm so sorry, that's not a strategy in international relations. I mean, even me as a student of international relations, I know that. And then you have to even define that, right? What is that a total victory? Because there were hints in certainly media and in certain statements over the past two years that total victory would be overthrowing uh, Putin, getting Putin out of the Kremlin. Uh, you know, so is total victory pushing them back to the 2022 borders? Is, is total victory uh, re, uh, reconquering Crimea and, and um, uh, republics? Or is it, it, does it go further than that? Nobody made a serious attempt to define that. And as a result, there was never any serious conversation about what is it that we can actually achieve. Now, what you're, what you're mentioning about the betrayal, though, this has been the tragedy, right? People like us, because we in our podcast mentioned this uh, at the time, uh, and we got very aggressive reactions against that. With people saying, oh, you're supporting Russia. Uh, even um, some Ukrainian listeners contacted us. And uh, in many ways, I would argue that we cared more about Ukraine than all those Western politicians promising um, the sky, right? Promising 
all these miraculous future scenarios. It was completely obvious for anyone rationally analyzing Western behavior that this support would have its limits. And it was completely obvious that there was a limit to what Ukraine could actually achieve in this war. And those people who denied that, some naively, some cynically, I would argue, are now responsible for the enormous destruction that has taken place without anything to show for it. Yeah. I mean, they, well, they, they are responsible for it, right? As much as the people actually executing uh, the damage. But I, I do hope that the listeners uh, understand what we are talking about here, right? Is that, yes, of course, it's not that a Westerner will have pulled the trigger on a gun, but by denying the momentum of negotiations in uh, one and a half years ago, they are basically responsible for the ongoing uh, violence, right? They're enabling that in that sense. Yeah, yeah, but it's also basically giving agency to Ukraine and to the West in this, right? So you've got in these kinds of types of analysis, we, our words, our podcasts, but also generally people who were, have been critical of uh, the Western position have no influence over Russian behavior. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that nobody in the Kremlin will ever listen to this podcast. Um, so what we are doing is saying here, there is a Russian variable that is static, that, that we can't change. What is our agency? What is Kiev's agency? What is um, Washington's agency over a future outcome? And there, there has been a lot of room to actually achieve a better outcome than what we're seeing right now. Hmm. And one of the reasons, uh, as we just pointed out, is the lack of a right strategy or strategic objectives uh, being put out, because that's also one of the foundations for successful negotiations. Another one here is, right, not only do you need strategic objectives, but the other side also needs strategic object objectives, and then you some meet somewhere in the middle, right, generally how negotiations go. However, a major part of the Western bubble has been the anti-Russian bubble, and with this, the denial of any strategic Russian objectives, right? Because as, as soon as you dehumanize and basically deny any rational motives behind your opponent's actions, you, you're basically undermining any form of negotiation attempt that there is. The continued, if you like, dehumanization of Russia, and with that I mean the acting as if Russia is some kind of Tolkien-esque horde of orcs about to devour Ukraine and then devour Poland and then devour Germany and go all the way to, to Spain. Um, it has led to a situation where Russia is basically explained through a narrative of evil. Um, they are the bad guys. They need to be stopped. And it's not specifically against your average Russian, even though there's a lot of anti-Russian bias, I would argue, in the West. But it is then specifically about Putin and the Kremlin. And so Putin and the Kremlin are not strategic actors. They're evil actors. They are actors bent on conquest and murder and destruction. And the moment that is your analysis, that is your bubble, you can no longer identify any common ground with them, which means that it becomes completely impossible, just as you said, to have any kind of negotiations with them. Uh, it becomes impossible to say, okay, um, this, this war has now happened. We wish it hadn't happened. We wish you hadn't done what you did, but we have to face reality. How can we come to some kind of agreement that we stop killing each other? Mm. And there, so there's an example that went through the media um, a few days ago, uh, right? It was the very sad um, 
well, the I'm just going to call it uh, neutrally like the death of Alexei Navalny, right? One of the biggest uh, oppositional uh, figures in in Russia, uh, who died in a in a forced labor camp, uh, right, so somewhere deep in Siberia. Um, I'm going to keep it neutral now, right? Because I don't know what happened. Nobody knows what exactly happened. But there's, uh, like, right, there is, of course, a role of the Kremlin played in this, right? So Putin really disliked him, saw him as an actual threat. Um, so I would say we can very much, uh, very easily blame Putin for this. Um, and it's very sad that a person died, and particularly under these uh, conditions. That's how you could put this. The West now in the last week has obviously put it in a different way, uh, right? I mean, kind of dragging Navalny's mother and his wife in front of the camera and basically turning him into a martyr, which, I mean, he very much may become by the Russians. But the West is again jumping onto this opportunity to very much dehumanize and villainize Russia and Putin. Yeah, it's, it's one of those moments that interest gets peaked again because uh, we are always morbidly um, entertained by murder and intrigue and those kinds of things. And then especially if you see the victims, family members grieving and, and fighting sort of a fight for their, their, their husband's or their son's rights, then that's, that's, that allows the news and the media to, to present this as a narrative that fits the overall bubble that fits the overall picture of just an evil regime that cannot be negotiated with that's just out to murder and that has no um clear um, strategic interest beyond that kind of evil wickedness right uh, and of course nothing could be further from the truth in terms of the strategic interest you can you can argue but you can put any moral label on on the putin regime we certainly in this podcast have zero sympathy for him he seems to be um a um, rather unpleasant authoritarian figure but that in itself is not our is not something that is relevant for the analysis for the analysis there's a question of are you actually an orc are you actually someone who is just out to murder and all that or are you actually an actor who tries to achieve something? And of course, Putin tries to achieve something. But then when Navalny gets murdered or killed, at least he has died, then we it allows us to forget about those strategic rational interests and once again portray the Kremlin as some kind of bunch of criminals and nothing else. What's the international relations context? Um, in this category of the international relations perspective, um, we always like to talk about uh, case studies. And there's two case studies that I think are very exemplary for the Western bubble in this specific um, right in this specific example of, of Ukraine. Uh, so one is an all-time favorite in our episodes and amongst our listeners, uh, the bombings of the Nord Stream pipelines, right? I mean, quick reminder to everyone, those gas pipelines going from Russia to Germany, uh, kind of sending a lot of, a lot of gas uh, to Europe. Um, it, it was 40% of Europe's, Europe's gas um, two years ago that were bombed um, and are basically now no longer carrying gas. Um, and there was obviously a lot of speculation what happened, right? So immediately a lot of uh, fingers pointed at Russia uh, for some reason. Um, then fingers pointed elsewhere towards the United States, towards Ukraine, towards private actors and so on and so forth. Nobody knew. So what do you do when nobody knows what happened? You launch an investigation. Uh, that's what Sweden, Germany and Denmark did. But they didn't do that jointly. 
which uh, I remember that one very good episode, very popular episode. Um, well, why didn't do this? They why didn't they do this jointly? Because there was a lot of mistrust, which is not a very good sign for the West in that sense. Um, Germany is still very much investigating things. The main lead is that it was a, a, a group of Ukrainians privately uh, privately organized. Uh, Denmark, we haven't really heard anything from Denmark in a long time. Uh, the last activity from them is from April 2023. But there has been some activity from Sweden lately. Um, Sweden has dropped its investigations, right? They're no longer continuing them and basically concluded that we don't know, we'll never find out. You said, um, you start off by saying, uh, what do you do if you don't know what's happening? Um, you start an investigation. Actually, the first thing you do in a Western bubble perspective is blame Putin and blame the Kremlin. Uh, just assume that they're the ones who did it because they're inherently evil. Then it, people started thinking for two minutes and thought, hang on, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, why would the Russians actually engage in this? And then the investigation started, right? Um, and yeah, so Sweden has dropped out. Now, the problem with these investigations, as we've, as we've discussed in the past, is that even though nobody, some people might know, but in the general public domain, nobody knows yet uh, what is actually true and what isn't, the two main um, actors to investigate here are Ukraine and maybe even the United States, because they're the ones who had most to gain from the blowing up of those pipelines. And for Sweden, Germany and Denmark to investigate that is is a minefield of diplomatic danger, right? You, you don't really want any specific outcome from an investigation like that because it could really hurt your relations, both towards Ukraine, towards NATO and towards Washington. So the fact that Sweden has dropped out, dropped its investigations is very likely motivated by not, not wanting to pay the price of actually having to point a finger at Ukraine or having to point a finger at the United States. That is way too dangerous and way too destructive. Um, and uh, the issue with uh, Denmark not really saying much about it is probably explained in the same way. Um, you know, even though they, they have still an ongoing investigation, probably they're not very comfortable with sharing their uh, their conclusions thus far. And yeah, Germany, that's something that you have to talk about, uh, Dario, because uh, those are your people. Yeah, my, my people, you know, it's I, I hope that at some point, maybe in 20 years, um, right, secret files will be opened. Um, and we will we will see many great Netflix shows or Disney Plus or whoever wants to turn this into a show because uh, the Germans investigating a private Ukrainian effort um, for and, and blaming them for this where it's pretty clear to to anyone and everyone that this must have been state sponsored in any in any way because otherwise you you can't do something like this. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have we've talked uh, plenty about uh, all the interests in our um, stakeholder analysis uh, on on the on the Nord Stream bombings about about a year ago. So I do um, encourage all of our listeners, if you haven't already, to listen to this episode. And in the second case study, um, we're going to be talking about the Institute for the Study of War, a think tank from the United States, founded in two thousand seven. Uh, in Washington DC and uh, right so they provide analysis on on war uh, all over the world and 
we've right i mean it's always good to look at these institutes uh, for these for these updates because they're usually a bit more analytical than newspapers in that sense and that's very much the impression uh you Balder, had of them basically one or, or two years ago where they just provided very factual and a bit of analytical daily updates on the uh, russian invasion of ukraine however nowadays um they are providing a different type of i don't even want to call it analysis anymore a narrative on the situation and this, this is fascinating, right? So as we've discussed, the general public was particularly interested in the invasion in the beginning, the first six months or so when Ukraine was doing well. And also a lot of my work was related to that. So I had to check regularly um, some news sources, some, some publicly available, some less publicly available. But one of the places I would go to on a daily basis was this, the Institute for the Study of War. Um, and... Um, they had their daily updates and those were analyzing war, military offensives, um, the power balance. Um, hey, what are the immediate objectives for Russia? What are the immediate objectives for Ukraine, etc.? Just what you would expect. Now, in the lead up to this uh, episode, I uh, looked at them again and I just clicked on the latest uh, the latest updates, they have these uh, still these daily updates called the Russian Offensive Campaign Assessment, February 24th, uh, 2024. And I couldn't believe my eyes because they, they stopped being a military analytical think tank and they turned into a purely political kind of think tank, one that basically puts a narrative forward, which takes away value from their military analysis. Now, we know about them, about their backgrounds, that they have a very specific American, even probably neoconservative uh, background. But it is amazing to see an institute during these past two years going from military analysis to basically providing political commentary. And um, that's how bubbles work, right? Well, let me look at the, right, so we're talking about the specific update, and of course we're going to link it in the post description uh, so that everyone uh, can read it themselves. But the first sentence is already an absolute masterpiece from a propaganda perspective. And I quote, Ukraine continues to defend against Russian aggression and the Kremlin's attempt to destroy Ukrainian statehood and identity. Russian President Vladimir Putin expected Ukrainians to welcome his forces or flee. Instead, Ukrainians fought for their freedom, end quote. Yes, if, if this had been a op-ed in the New York Times, okay, fine, um, you, you, you put your own romantic perspective on this, but this is from quoted from a military institute, one that is supposed to analyze war. And so the moment you start this kind of propaganda, this kind of political subjective wording, to describe what's happening at the front, um, you can no longer be relied upon to provide objective analysis. And this is damaging, I would argue, to the Institute, but it's also damaging to Western society. It is basically after two years, apparently very few institutes and very few analysts can escape choosing sites in this. Um, and, and before any uh, listeners get upset, this is not about us saying that you shouldn't be critical of Russia or that you shouldn't uh, admire Ukrainian resistance or Ukrainian um, defense. No, no, no. It is about what is the goal of this institute? What is it that you're supposed to do? You're supposed to analyze the military side. You're not supposed to be part of some kind of propaganda machine. Moving on to the next 
part of this article and I quote, The situation today is grave, but it is far from hopeless. Ukrainians are wary and worried that American military assistance will cease, but they continue to fight with determination, ingenuity and skill. Yeah, completely empty sentence at last. I mean, they will continue to fight with determination, ingenuity and skill. Um, you can almost read the between the lines. The Russians continue to fight with evil darkness and 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 murderous uh, intent. Um, but uh, on top of that, it it turns themselves into an advocacy group, right? Because here, basically, they're making the case that America needs to continue its military assistance. Once again, it has nothing to do with the military side of it. It's got to do with the political motivations for America. I mean, if you give if you give me just a statement, right, on a blank piece of paper, and you ask me, Dario, with your experience of international affairs, who published the statement? I would tell you the Ukrainian ambassy, uh, embassy in the United States. Because that's a perfect statement from that perspective, right? Oh, so yes, we Ukrainians are really worried that the Americans are not going to support us anymore. But we're continuing the fight, right? We are, we're not hopeless. We're not losers. We will continue this fight. And in that case, it would make perfect sense for Ukraine to do that. That's exactly what Ukraine should be doing. They need to continue rallying the troops in the West. They need to continue um, uh, de demanding or asking for military support because that's also what has been promised to them. So if this was the Ukrainian ambassador, uh, we would say, okay, you're doing your job. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. But if you are a military institute, then all of a sudden um, it becomes a different story. And even though this is only one, it's a pretty influential website. It's a pretty influential institute, but it is typical of how many organizations have changed their 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 responsibilities right where initially for example newspapers you would argue their responsibility is to report on the war and they've also turned into advocacy machines they've also tried to continue continuously put pressure on politicians on policymakers and even the general public to continue fighting the war for ukraine not doing their job as journalists of just reporting what's going on mm. and Now the uh, basically little article continues and it moves on from pro-Ukrainian propaganda into anti-Russian sentiments, right? And I quote, And Ukrainian soldiers are fighting for their positions against Russian meat assaults using drones in novel ways as well as the artillery, tanks and traditional weapons of war available to them, end quote. And so the meat, meat, meat assaults is, is, is a reference to just throwing human beings at the enemy, right? So the, the Russians don't care about human life. That's the narrative here. Uh, they're just throwing their soldiers at Ukrainians and they get killed. Um, once again, dehumanizing at the very minimum um, Russian leadership, but I would also argue kind of the min, uh, dehumanizing soldiers, Russian soldiers here. Uh, and... These kinds of this kind of language would once again fit into Lord of the Rings. It would fit into these romantic books where good fights evil. It doesn't fit into a realistic analysis of what's going on in the ground. And to top the article off, we also have some right. I mean, because first we highlighted how great Ukraine is, then we highlighted how evil the Russians are. Now we need to get the troops or the people at home rallied up. So let's kind of throw in some threat to the West. And I quote. Putin remains a deadly threat to NATO as well as to Ukraine. However, the Kremlin has been setting conditions to conduct hybrid warfare operations in the Baltic states and Finland for months and is currently engaged in such operations against Moldova. End quote. 
Yeah, so the two, two things jump out there. The first, Putin remains a deadly threat to NATO. This has been a continued narrative, right, that was pushed from the very beginning, even before the invasion of Ukraine, by the way. Um, I still am waiting for someone to explain exactly how. Um, who, who in their right mind thinks that Putin looks at his um, war in Ukraine, which even though tides have turned a little bit in favor of the Russians, it hasn't exactly been a success, let's be clear, from a Russian perspective. Um, Putin looks at Ukraine and thinks, okay, now once this war is done, Poland will be next. I mean, who in the right man believes that that is actually a scenario? The EU alone, without even including the United States, without the whole of NATO, the EU alone outspends Russia by a factor of one to six, something like that, uh, in military terms. And there's absolutely no way that, especially within a NATO framework, that Russia would attack a NATO member. The, when they say there is a deadly threat to NATO, I want them to explain what they exactly mean. What I do know is that NATO has been getting closer and closer to Russian territory. So Russia feels threatened by NATO. But how NATO threatens Russia, how Russia threatens NATO is completely unclear to me. The, the second bit, um, the Kremlin has been setting conditions to conduct hybrid warfare operations in the Baltic states and Finland for months. Yes, has anyone been paying attention for the past years at how many military exercise operations, exercises NATO has uh, conducted in the Baltic, in Scandinavian countries, in Poland. Uh, enormous uh, NATO exercises and NATO presence is there. So yes, Russia is preparing for potential conflict and NATO is preparing for um, potential conflict. The way it's presented in this article is as if it, Russia are the only ones who are threatening someone and as if NATO are just some you know, peace-loving hippies who are just smoking their weed and not doing anything else. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? The outcome of this is very negative. I mean, obviously, when we're talking about the problems and the damage. Um, so not only do we have this anti-Russian sentiment, right, which we analyzed in the bubble and, and just now, and that obviously leads to a misunderstanding or... No, it's not even a misunderstanding. Sorry, it's a, it's an ignorance towards Russian objectives, which then in turns uh, in turn doesn't allow us to engage in negotiations with Russia. And this is what we started the episode with, right? One and a half years, there was a potential for negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. A ceasefire or some form of peace agreement could may have been struck. Um, however, we didn't even have that option because the West very much blocked this. And the outcome of this is a few hundred thousand casualties more, a few hundred thousand bombs dropped more, right, on Ukraine, um, attacks against civilians, um, buildings, infrastructure being completely destroyed. The West is indirectly responsible for the continued suffering. Yeah, so the, the moment that the Kremlin decided to invade Ukraine, it was determined that at that moment there wouldn't be any happy outcome from this anymore. For You know, the moment you start a voluntary war, like Putin and his government did, the moment you invade another Westphalian country is the moment that basically there will only be losers at the end, right? People will have died, destruction will have taken place, etc. So the question is, the moment that happens, how do you then react to that and how do you mitigate the damage? How do you try to minimize the damage? And that is something that the West has actually never really asked themselves. 
the moment that the war started was also a moment that you have to be realistic in in order to save lives you cannot believe in some kind of romanticized image of good versus evil you need to look at how the real world works there's nothing good or fair or just about ukraine for example losing further territory but fairness is not a factor here this is about strategic interests and this is about how can you get the least destructive outcome possible after russia decided to start this war um, there's nothing there's no nothing good about saying that um, probably ukraine will have to mm, give something to russia as a result of this there's nothing happy about that there's nothing fair about it saying yes putin is probably going to get something out of this war it's it's horribly frustrating especially if you're ukrainian but it is also the reality of how the world works and at the fact that the west has been blocking any such conversations and instead has created this incredibly simplistic idiotic i would argue narrative of good versus evil and has refused to actually identify what kind of success they are looking for what is it that would be an acceptable outcome means that they certainly carry some of the responsibility for the enormous bloodshed that has taken place and what now so far the only countries that have put solutions on the table um, are outside the West. Um, so uh, Brazil was one of them. Uh, Turkey has put forward solutions, right? But they were all brushed aside by the West, of course. Now there is, um, right, there's talks that Switzerland is currently preparing negotiations uh, because Ukraine asked them to. And looking into the future, right, this means that uh, Ukraine will most, most likely um, have not the best conditions, right, for, for these negotiations. Because one and a half years ago would have been great, upper hand, yeah. Now, um, Western support is fading, Ukrainian uh, kind of resistance uh, is fading away. So Ukraine is basically worse off in the negotiations, potentially losing out on more. Yeah, let me correct a little bit. It wouldn't have been great for Ukraine a year and a half ago. It would have been less destructive. It would have been it would have minimized the damage that was done by this Russian invasion. Um, and, and now it's getting worse and worse. Um, also, those three countries that, you are, that you're mentioning, I mean, Switzerland, you could call them, of course, being part of the West because they're in Western Europe, but um, very much outside of geopolitics of the West, right? Switzerland prides itself in its neutrality. Turkey, Brazil, very much players that, that position themselves outside of the West. So it is kind of, it is an indictment of failing and destructive western policy that the answers or at least the attempted answers for any kind of positive future are coming from outside of that western bubble outside of nato um, because they have basically positioned themselves as part of this conflict as as combatants within this fight so what could a constructive role of the west look like now Right, so you've messed it up a little bit for Ukraine, um, quite a lot exactly. I should be more precise on how I say these things. Yeah, um, you've messed up quite a lot for the for Ukraine. Um, now Ukraine is going to have to take up negotiations soon, right? Because you want to reduce suf uh, suffering on, on all sides. Um, does the West now 
they can't be mediator. They have to they have to sit basically behind Ukraine and kind of like yeah put put it put its hand over over them. But how else can we can we play a constructive role as the West and maybe even as Western uh, right just as the Western population? Yeah, this is it's a very good and fair question, but it's one that I find very difficult to answer because the West has created such an impossible scenario for itself right so it's 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 really it's a very valid question how can the west position itself more productively but they've done so much damage they've ducked themselves into such a deep hole that it's really difficult because you also can't say oh just now tell ukraine to go to the negotiating table because that would all of a sudden then switch the pendulum all the way to moscow in terms of negotiating power uh, so if one solution is not um, drop support for Ukraine and the other solution is not continuous support for Ukraine well, what what is the solution right um, and and it, it's 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 very difficult to actually come up with something positive there at a the very minimum um, I would argue that the West needs to stop trying to set the agenda for Kiev let Kiev decide what they want to accomplish now it's it's they it's Ukrainians who are dying and Russians who are dying, not Western uh, soldiers, not Western leaders. So let gives that now. There's an additional problem there that Zelensky also who has been you know digging a big hole for himself probably wants to be careful not to sign a peace treaty or ceasefire that is seen as particularly bad for Ukraine because that would be the end of his political career, right? So. It's tricky, but at the very minimum, start giving agency back to Ukraine. Stop trying to set the agenda for Kiev. So now to finish this episode, I have a bit of a provocative thought, um, just because last week we talked about the foreign policy of Donald Trump. Is this maybe the moment for Donald Trump? Because I, I, I right now, right as what you described to me, what the Western role could and should be uh, like, I was thinking, well, nobody in the West could actually sell this right now. Except Donald Trump, because he's been saying it all along. Yeah, the, the the question is though how that would how that would play in Moscow, right? Um, it's very difficult to know exactly what the relationship between Trump and Putin is. It's very difficult. We, you know, there are all these in in conspiracy theories. Certainly in two thousand sixteen, there were uh, these conspiracy theories about Trump being basically in the pocket of Putin. Um, it, it is not clear what it would look like. If Trump gets elected, that would certainly create a new dynamic. And it can't really get much worse, right? Um, I guess that a worse scenario than what we have now is somehow Russia basically rolling over Ukrainian defenses, getting all the way to Kiev and, and basically trying to establish some kind of proxy regime. It's, it's, it would be unlikely for that to happen even under Trump presidency. So yes, perhaps perhaps a Trump presidency would at least create a new dynamic that, that can break the stalemate that exists today. See, this is me trying to derail the recording um, in the last minute. Uh, this is the part that wasn't planned. I can let that know. I, well, um, this is some information that I'll, I'll, I'll let the audience know. But I think that this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. If you have any questions, comments, regards, or solutions, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side, Balder. Which closing quote did you pick for us today? I'm now tempted to take some quotes from 
past episodes where I criticized Donald Trump that nobody walks away with the thought that Balder believes that Donald Trump would actually bring peace to the world. Uh, but no, um, I've prepared a uh, more sensible quote, a very famous one and a short one by Herbert Hoover, the 31st president of the United States, who said, Older men declare war, but it is the youth that must fight and die 